G'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I have a huge announcement to make. Now as you all know, I've been working on my brand new book called Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And I am super pumped to announce that it is now live on my website. It is live on Amazon. So please jump over to readgoosens.com forward slash books and grab a copy today. All proceeds from the sale of this book goes to charity. So remember to jump over to readgoosens.com forward slash books and get your hands on one today. Now back into the show. My background is not technology. I am a, what do they call it? Non-technical tech founder. Uh, and I didn't realize how big of a uh, issue that is. People told me, but I thought, hey, look, I, I, build, I, I built a moto. It's, it's hugely successful. I know how to run a company. And I, what I will do is I will get smart people to build that for me. And then I'll run the business. But that's not the case. You really have to, if you're trying to bootstrap and if you don't have you know, $10 million at your disposal where you'll have a full team, you're playing project manager, you're playing product manager, you are playing engineer and you need to be able to speak that language. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Daryl Glade. Daryl is the co-founder of Stilio, the largest real estate photography company in the United States. Stilio connects photographers with real estate agents to help them promote their real estate listings. In an earlier life, uh, Daryl was the founder of Emoto Photo, and he's also the founding member of the Association of Real Estate Photographers. I'm really excited and pumped to have him on the show, but enough anime. Let's get him out here. G'day, Daryl. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Mate, I'm looking forward to it as well. But um, like I ask all my guests when they come on this show, rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Washing cars. 
uh, the very first dollar, I remember asking my dad, uh, I wanted a, a, another uh, bit of allowance. And he said, well, you, you know, uh, you've already gotten your allowance. Uh, do you have any other ideas? And I said, sure, I can uh, do something for you. And he said, how about washing my car? And I, I washed the car. And I really remember specifically, he said, before, I, before he agreed to it, he says, you're going to need to learn how to take criticism. So if you didn't do the job correctly, you'll have to talk to your client and make it right. And that was the first bit of customer service that I've had to deal with. And I didn't handle it very well at the time, but uh, certainly that uh, first learning experience, definitely. Like, like most kids can't be handled being told what to do, right, by their parents. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you and me alike. Um, but mate, w- walk us through now from, from you know, you being a kid, you know, you've clearly got a sense of entrepreneurship. Um, did that really start as a young age or did you go off and do something else in college and stumble across entrepreneurship later on in life? You know, I grew up and my father was uh, an accountant. He owned his own company. So he was a bit of an entrepreneur or a small business owner, we can call it. And it's a one man show. And what I remember growing up is that any time that I had sports during the day or a play at school or whatever it was, he was always there. So I learned the, the freedom of owning your own schedule. But at the same time during tax season, I also saw that he worked 16, 18 hour days to get the job done. So I learned hard work from him. I saw that to be an entrepreneur, you really do commit to working all the time, but you do have some flexibility in your schedule. And that's something that really attracted me to entrepreneurship at a really young age. Went to college and my, my college, I went to University of Georgia for my undergraduate degree. And they were one of the top risk management programs in the country. And I was there for a couple of years. I didn't really have a major and I was taking management because I thought I wanted to do small business. That was the, at the time, the closest major, I guess. And, but uh, I was worried about getting a job. So I went to the risk management track. I got a job in risk management, which is really just a fancy way of saying insurance, <laughs> virtual insurance broker. And very quickly, I was about 22, 23. And I realized, um, you know, I don't want to cast a, a shadow over every insurance broker. But in my particular case, the only times my clients talked to me was one of two ways was one, they had a claim. So that means like their factory burned down. Or the second was I was their insurance rates were going up. So nobody ever wanted to talk to me. So I quit that really quickly. Uh, I guess I was there for a couple of years. And I went back and got my MBA, just so I could start down that path of entrepreneurship, small business, it wasn't necessarily that I needed the education to do that. It was more, I had no ideas and I thought getting an education could connect me with some people. I could start brainstorming ideas throughout grad school and, uh, and we were off to the races. Awesome. Well, that sounds like an incredible journey because not many people, uh, well, I lie because MBAs have a bit of a stigma around them these days and, yeah. you know, it's yeah. more about like, just get out and do it, <laughs> you know, yeah, instead exactly. of spending the, the six figures on an MBA degree, go out and, um, you know, spend it on starting a business. But as you just said, you didn't have an idea. So yeah. with your first business, which was a moto photo, how did you I was my first business. It wasn't? <laughs> no, my very first business, I uh, wrote a business plan as a class project while getting my graduate degree and my professor was a visiting professor. He loved the idea and uh, he and I started the business together. 
and it was a, a business plan was for a high-end furniture and art consignment store. So um, I'm in New Orleans, and there are a lot of antiques. There's a lot of old houses. There's a lot of beautiful art. And the idea was, can we create a place so that people could bring in their high-end antiques and art? We would sell them and then have an automatic markdown, just like any consignment store, but applying it to sort of higher-end products. And we started the business. Um, I learned a lot. We renovated a big warehouse. We had to secure the warehouse, first of all, you know, real estate. That was my first introduction to real estate. We had a manager crew to do the renovation. It was about a, I don't know, 8,000 square foot warehouse that we renovated. I had to build the operating system. I had to build the point of service or point of purchase system and get the initial stock of furniture, all of that, and learned a lot. I had a lot of fun doing it. And once it was built, I found myself as the general manager of a furniture store. And even though it was exciting to build a business, that particular role wasn't terribly exciting and uh, ended up selling that business to uh, my partners and then started real estate doing uh, my first bit of, uh, I guess, 10 years in real estate sales starting at that point. Real estate sales in a brokerage firm? Yep. Oh, interesting. Why, why did you change the change path, you know, being on this entrepreneurial path and going into becoming a broker? Because there is a bit of entrepreneurship with that in that you run, you do run your own business. Uh, you're an independent contractor. So even though a company held my license, I got to decide how I was going to do my marketing, what I was going to focus on, be it investment property or condos or historic properties. I got to determine my brand, how I was going to work with my clients and get new clients. Uh, so it was a way to get into entrepreneurship without having to have a whole lot of money. Really, it's just you study, you take the test, and you get started. Uh, and really, what, what's the real reason I got into that? Well, my girlfriend, now wife, uh, her godmother owned a large brokerage in town and said, you really should look into this. So I said, okay. Hmm. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, it's, it's, it's great to get a win on the board with selling your first business and then get into something that is a little bit, I guess, different, but, but also... Um, allows you to that flexibility and freedom to go off and you know still yeah. grow your skills right and uh, sharpen those tools. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so tell me a little bit about your first business, the Moto Photography, and, and what yep. that was all about, and, and how that that evolved. Yeah, certainly. So when I was a real estate agent, I was doing my own development investment myself on the side, but then I was also doing normal listing, and I was hiring a individual guy to, to shoot my listings to help me with marketing. I knew uh, pretty early on how important photography was. He and I became friends and he started asking me advice on how to run his business a little better, how to grow a little more. He had bigger dreams than just um, a, a small photography company. We became friends and said, hey, why don't we, why don't we think about doing something a little different? And he was working with someone at the time and he dissolved that partnership, and then he and I decided to get moving. But an interesting wrinkle on the, my whole history was at the time, I was becoming a little jaded with the real estate brokerage, real estate sales side. I'd been doing it a while. Um, it's one of the top in the state of Louisiana and just sort of got a little frustrated by some you know, certain specifics about the business, as you can imagine, and um, decided to go to law school. And so I started law school uh, with the idea of perhaps going into the real estate side of law. I could 
create my own company and use all of the information that I learned in selling real estate and all my connections to start a law firm, again, doing entrepreneurial stuff, again, working for myself, but not necessarily creating a widget or creating a new service. It was a little more, uh, I don't know, risk averse uh, to a certain extent, getting into something that's already there. And um, so I started law school. If you talk to my wife now, there was never a shot that I was ever going to be a lawyer, but I thought so. Uh, and in between my second and third year of law school, me and my now partner, Chris, uh, who is the guy I was taking my photos, started uh, Emoto Photo in between our second, my second and third year of law school. By the time I had graduated and passed the bar, Emoto was profitable and successful enough for me not to have to practice law. So I have never officially practiced law a day in my life. Well, I just wrote down the word seasoned student, you know, going yeah, oh, from love undergrad to MBA <laughs> to back to, it's sort of, and, and look, it's, it's a thing that a lot of people, folks today, when they've run out of ideas, they're saying, oh, let's go throw some more money at a degree, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're, you're a very good example of how you've not even used that degree because you'd stumble across something that you and your business partner were doing kind of on the side. So, um, but, but tell me a little bit more about how it became profitable and what was it and, and, and was, and how it went from just being a small photography company into something a lot greater. Yeah. So, you know, he did have a bit of a book of business before, so we weren't started from scratch, but we had an idea of, we have to make it all about the client. We want to make a business that is focused a hundred percent on the client and That meant it didn't matter how much money we were making to start. We were going to do everything we had to do to make sure we got a great, solid base of clients. And that was a little bit different of opinion that he had with his uh, his previous partner. And so that's why he and I worked so well together. It was, we're going to reinvest as much as we possibly can. If we can reinvest everything, we would have. But of course, we did have expenses to live and all, but the vast majority was reinvested in the company and it was all about analyzing what the client wanted. Uh, It was, all right, these agents are on the go and they're fast uh, movers. So we need to get the orders in and processed and back to them as fast as possible. So what does that mean? That means investment, heavy investment in technology, heavy investment in a website that allows us to receive those orders from the cell phones, from laptops, uh, have customer service that can answer the phones. That could, that means photographers being able to log into the back end of the site to get the orders automatically. And also means a big focus on post-processing. And that's one of the big deals. So we are doing all of our post-processing in Asia. So we take advantage of the time difference so that when we go to sleep over here in the States, they're up working, And by the time they're done, we are now waking up, which means our clients are getting the photos not 24 hours later, typically 12 hours later, or certainly by six or seven o'clock the morning after the shoot. So at 3 p.m., they're getting their photos back. And this is years ago. This is 2013. Our turnaround time is even faster now. So now they're getting it at two, three o'clock in the morning instead of having to wait till six or seven or eight in the morning, something like that in the beginning. And so with that focus, we were able to get a lot of clients on board and grow pretty quickly. And then really the biggest thing is that we hustled big accounts. 
So I was knocking on the doors of the largest brokers in New Orleans and Louisiana and saying, we want a preferred exclusive deal with you. And as soon as we got that very first one, which actually happened, um, it went live the very week of my bar exam for law school. Uh, and so that was pretty interesting, but that very week we went live and because of that one deal and they're like the, I think now they're the 30th, 30th largest broker in the country. And so that one deal opened the door to growing throughout the country because we got buy-in from a real deal company. That's, 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 that's incredible. The two have, I guess the, well, well, first question is, so you, you sound like you were very much focused on the New Orleans and area, right? And, and when you got into that brokerage company and they started opening up to different markets, how did you keep the quality of your photography the same as what you're giving your clients in New Orleans? That was a big hassle. Uh, I shouldn't say hassle, uh, issue, without a doubt. I mean, we, cre we controlled the post-processing so we could fix a lot, but ultimately the person representing our brand is the photographer. They're independent contractors. And so they're not employees. So there's a limit of what you can do in terms of education, uh, quote unquote training. You're really not even supposed to be able to do training. There's a lot of laws and, and they vary between states regarding independent contractors, as I'm sure you're seeing in the news, Uber and Instacart and all these other um, on-demand on or gig economy contractors, are they contractors employees? So we take that very seriously. But back then, even, even more so, a little more gray area, but ultimately it was the interview process. If we couldn't find someone that could, uh, we saw bought into what we're doing, what our mission was, how we wanted to work with our clients, what our long-term goals were. You know, if someone was just trying to make a couple extra bucks, they didn't get hired as a contractor. In fact, one of the, th we, we have an online, even then we had an online application system that we used to weed out a lot of people. And one of the things was, one of the questions was, why do you want this job? And right or wrong, and I'm sure your listeners may have completely opposite views in it, and it's okay, but the way I looked at it was if anyone in that, particular uh, section, because you're only given a limited amount of space. If someone said, I'm doing it for the money or to pick up extra money, if they related, if they referenced money at all, they didn't get a call. And that may be very harsh because in the end, yeah, why are they applying to earn an income? But there's a, there's an art to getting a job and there's an art to, uh, it's not solely about the money even though, yeah, you could boil things down, but there's a lot of other things that the photographer or applicant can reference in that short period of time. And the first thing shouldn't necessarily be money. And again, right or wrong, but that was a very easy way for us to really um, uh, weed out some people. And then the other thing was, is we required really high-end equipment. They had to have professional grade equipment. And again, are there really good photographers with amateur equipment? Absolutely. Did we miss out on potentially hundreds of really good applicants. I have no doubt that's the case. But again, you have limited resources, limited time, limited ability to interview. And one of the things was is that if you're going to be in a different market where we don't see you all the time and you're going to be representing us to the client that we work really hard on obtaining, you have to be professional. You have to have professional equipment. You need to be able to impress the client. And that's just step one. 
So, so I guess quality control, was there certain processes that you had to implement? Did you fly people out and sort of mystery shop these photographers in, in the field? Did you get any negative feedback from any of your clients saying, hey, this XYZ person was a real dick to me? Um, you know, and it's sort of losing that sort of touch and control because you are trusting someone else with your business. Yeah, that's uh, trusting someone else with your business and losing control is that was the biggest thing for me to get over in the early days when we were expanding and we expanded pretty rapidly to, to markets that were not just driving distance. It was, you know, five hour drive, perhaps uh, we went from. Uh, New Orleans all the way to the Texas border in like three months. So we, and, and, and all the way in between and then all the way over to where the interstate I-10 goes east-west and it goes all the way through Florida and the Panhandle of Florida and runs right into the water. So we were covering all of that very, very quickly. So we were interviewing people that I would never meet besides this type of conversation over, over the internet. And um, it was really hard for me to let go, but I interviewed every single one. Uh, it didn't matter that we had a photographer manager, so to speak. I was still the one doing all the interviews. In fact, that has happened all the way up until this very year. So six or seven years, I was doing all the interviews of every everyone. Now it's just a little untenable with the, the fact how much we're growing and how quickly we're, we're still growing. But um, it was, the beauty though, is that our clientele is not shy about letting us know if there's an issue. So realtors, homeowners, uh, investors who are renting property or builders or contractors, these are the types of clients we have. So if they're not happy, they let us know pretty quickly. And the way that we work is that we respond as soon as we can, meaning priority number one, drop everything else, make sure this person's happy. Um, you know, it's, there's a fine line on being like Zappos, you know, did you read that book by Tony Shea, uh, Delivering Happiness, where basically you could, they're, they're empowered to do anything to make the client happy. We, we can't go that far because we don't have unlimited budget. Uh, so it's not like we can buy people pizzas and all that stuff. And not only that, if we feel like perhaps we did meet our responsibilities, uh, and contractual responsibilities, but the client's still not happy. Do we still give the shoot for free? Do we offer uh, a discount? How do we do it? But, you know, that was something that we had to learn, uh, really, what's the best way to do it. And uh, to fast forward till now, we err on the side of, we tell them what our thoughts are, and if they're still pushing, okay, we, we, we will refund your money. Uh, you know, it's just that easy. It's, they're less likely to complain online, and that's a really big deal these days. And, and our clients are tapped in and, and will voice their opinions online. Um, our brand is what we make of it online. So we're very protective and, you know, we, we will try to, we have terms and conditions that everyone agrees to, and it, we will try to enforce those. But in the end, it's not worth the, the headache, quite frankly, and the amount of time arguing and the negativity around it. Uh, luckily, we're at the point with profitability that we, we can do that more often than not. Uh, but in the early days, it was just respond as fast as you possibly can. Right, just, just scramble to get it done, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in, in those early days, we spoke a little bit offline about how you build the company. Like, was it just without your own resources, you, you, you and your business partner, did you put your own capital into it or did you bring other people's money in at the, at, right at the early stages? 
Yeah, we bootstrapped it all. We did not bring in any investors. Uh, a business partner, Chris and I, we put up a little money in the very beginning to build a, a website. It was, uh, we're, our first one was based on WordPress uh, that, that Chris actually built. And then we wanted to start taking orders online. So we outsourced it to a company in California where we paid 25 grand, which is nothing these days. And it was nothing then, quite frankly. Uh, and, but it allowed us to take orders online and to start shifting and continuing investing. And what's interesting is we, we invested 25 grand, but I think within the next 12 months, we put in uh, over 100 grand more on upgrades, just continually upgrading more and more and more, continually taking the profits and reinvesting and reinvesting and um, making our lives easier in that we could do a lot online, streamline a lot of things. But, uh, and a, a really good example is in the beginning, Clients had to call one of our cell phones. We would then go to Google Calendar and put it in. So the calendar, we had, my business partner was shooting, we had one other photographer, and I was doing the invoicing. The shoot, we'd go out and do the shoot, we would get it edited, the photos would come back, we'd have to manually download the photos, each order at a time, manually upload them into our system, and then I would send a QuickBooks invoice. And so that means if the clients were getting the photos, but they, we had accounts receivable. And very quickly, we were running up a very large accounts receivable for such a small organization. Uh, and we knew we had to figure out a way to not release the product until we collect payment. And that meant we needed to build a new website from scratch. And uh, then that's what we did with that, with, with the, the Joomla site. So we built it from almost scratch, I guess, from Joomla. Uh, I guess that's not really from scratch, but, uh, then that allowed us to charge first and, uh, and release it, but it was all automated. So it was a step to automate a lot of things. And by, able, by automating a lot of things, we helped keep our overhead very low. So instead of having to keep hiring customer service, we were able to remove certain customer service uh, acts or, or duties and make it automated, which meant our customer service could truly be doing customer service, not necessarily scheduling and other things. So they could really be talking to the client. And then the most recent part going uh, all the way to, to, to today, we, have, we totally did build a, a site from scratch, spent a ton of money on that, uh, launched it about a year ago. But what happens now is we can take an order from start to absolute finish, meaning charge and delivery, without having to uh, do anything manually. It could be 100% automated. So the agent goes, the client goes to the site, places the order, it's automatically released to the photographer. Photographer shows up, takes the photos, uploads the photos into the site, particular to that order, shipped off via an API to our editors. Editors edit, ship back through the API to us. The system knows to recount the new products and to adjust the invoice hits the credit card we have on file, then we release the photos. So in the end, you don't have to have any conversation, but there's a lot of changes, there's a lot of hand-holding, there's a lot of customer service still. So we do have full-time customer service, a whole customer service staff, but if, a, if an agent didn't want to talk to anyone because they're so fat, their, their time is so strapped, they don't have to. It goes from uh, right into their account without, you know, without having a call or talk to anyone. And you've, you've, you've sort of talked a little bit about the evolution of your business, but 
you know, in the green room before we, we, we press record here, you were talking a little bit about how Emoto went into now Folio. Oh, sorry, Stilio. Yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about that transition and why that occurred because I think that's very interesting um, offline when we were speaking was about the, the aspect of pivoting a business mm-hmm. to, to react to what the marketplace right. wants you to do. Yeah. So Emoto was growing and we've grown it into one of the top five largest in terms of revenue, real estate specific photography companies in the US. Uh, and we're really proud about that. We've grown into uh, many, many, many states, hundreds and hundreds of markets, photographers all over the place, sales staff and all that. It's great. Um, two years ago, uh, the executive team came together and said, we want to write down every issue, every obstacle, every problem that every single one of our stakeholders has. Stakeholders being uh, the, the owners of the company, which is still just Chris and myself, the executive team, our photographers, our sales team, the clients who are purchasing from us, the homeowners who are getting the benefit of their agents buying the, these photos from us. So every single person who interacts with our business, and we sat down and, and made a, just a giant list of all of these issues. And then we analyzed them and how can we solve these issues? How can we fix a lot of these things? And that helped us with our new website, of course, and that helped us change a lot of things the way we operate. It was very helpful, but there was also a leftover list of issues that there's just no way we could have solved them as Emoto. I'll, I'll name a couple just very quickly. Um, the, the photographers. If a particular photographer, the, the way that the photographers work with Emoto, and we can be very candid about it, is that they get paid on a basically per product basis. So if they're only taking photos, they get paid for the photos. If they're doing photos and a floor plan, they get paid for the photos and a floor plan. Uh, and, and et cetera. There's obviously some twists to that, but ultimately that's how it's done. And so they can only do a certain number of shoots a day, which means they have a capped revenue amount income for the year. It's just simple math. Some photographers absolutely love it because they have a lot of other things going on. And even though that perhaps there is a cap, that's plenty enough money for them. They love what they're doing. They play in a band at night, they're wedding photographers on the weekend, whatever it is. And it works great. But then there's also photographers that have bigger ambitions that would prefer to run their own business and have more say and make more money. So Inamoto could never be that for them. Uh, another example is real estate agents. With Emoto, they work with Emoto. Yeah, they could select the photographer they want to work with, but ultimately their relationship is with Emoto, which means they have to abide by our uh, procedures. If you're a big company, you have to have procedures. So we, the, we have an office that closes. We don't have someone answering. Well, technically we have, we do have someone canceling the phone 24 hours a day, but sometimes it's an answering service that doesn't have money, all the answers. So if someone wants to be able to pick up the phone and call their photographer at quarter to 10 at night and get answers, we're not, we cannot do that without having to hire 24 hour customer service staff, which means we're raising our rates, which means, you know, is a, it just wouldn't work with our business model. So we were trying to figure out ways to do it. And I was doing a lot of reading. So like you said, like we talked about, I love education. And now my education is I read a ton. I do a lot of reading and I was reading a book about platform networks. Uh, what's a platform network? I mean, Amazon is a platform network, Facebook, 
Uh, Apple can be a platform network. Google can be a platform network. Some of the largest companies in the world are based on platform networks. And ultimately, what is a platform network? It is the te technology. It is the interface that connects one party with another. Uh, this is a very basic, generic definition. I know your listeners could probably do much better, but ultimately, it's a, it's a company that connects two other parties or more. And so we said, well, what if we applied the platform network business model to real estate photography? And that's when the idea started flowing. So could we create a real estate photography marketplace, which is what ultimately it is, where photographers can create a profile, run their own businesses based off of the technology we provide them, and then real estate agents can go in, enter a zip code, browse and compare all the local photographers, be able to book them through Stilio, uh, which is now Stilio, the, the website, which is now Stilio. And that's really the, the beginnings of the idea. And then it went even further and we realized it was really solving a lot of problems. So yeah, the, the agent wants that flexibility to work with an individual photographer that they can call at quarter to 10 and, and negotiate rates and do other things. But they also need a reliable photographer that's got great photos, that's got a technology platform, that's got the ability to collect payment online, deliver the photos, to be able to cover large parts of their marketplace. And most individual photographers don't have that access. Many do, don't get me wrong. Uh, but the largest percentage have a camera and they don't have all these other features. So then you add those people to to the platform where we're providing those features for them, then all of a sudden both parties win. And it's a, it's a great, uh, it's just a great connection. And so what ends up happening is that Emoto still doing great, just couldn't expand as fast as we wanted to. And we launched Stilio um, a couple of years ago and we did have some growing pains that I'm, I'm happy to talk about, of course, but ultimately as soon as we launched it, we got, 6,000 photographer applications and after we approve them and there is a manual approving and vetting process we had photographers in 48 out of the 50 states uh, like that within months so we saw that there's a huge demand for the photographers to have these services at really attractive free rates like we charge uh, and, and we're just we're, we're just getting started with that now. That, that that's really incredible. And one thing that comes to mind when I'm thinking about that story is, how does one company not cannibalize the other in terms of the rate in which the individual photographer grows as in confidence as an entrepreneur, and they just ultimately come over to the other platform? Yeah. So that was the, one of the first questions that we had to answer ourselves. And what we originally now this is a different opinion, but originally we said. Well, the future that we're seeing in all these other industries is that people are building these platform networks. If the largest companies in the world are using it, why is it, it at some point going to be applied to every industry, specifically ours? So the thought was, well, someone's going to do it. And if, it's success, if it is successful, it will put a moto out of business. So if that's going to happen, wouldn't it be better if we put ourselves out of business? Because if we're doing that, then maybe Emoto's competitors are also going to be struggling. Or maybe it's a bigger play where it's a merging of companies. And it seemed like if it was going to happen, let us control it. I want to be in control of my 
destiny. You're going out of business. Yeah, right? no, that's a, that's a very good way of thinking about it. I didn't even think about that like that. Like you, well, if we're going to, we know we need to create this thing. Why don't we just create it? And we, it's okay if the if the baby dies, our original yeah. baby, because it's it's just part of business, and it's okay to let something die. Yeah, um, you're you're exactly right. And and but we had some freedom because remember we did not have investors. It was me and Chris. So we didn't have to answer to someone saying, well, why are you spending time on a business that's going to, you know, screw me in, in the end. Uh, but by the way, that's not how we feel about it now necessarily. Uh, so there's been a bit of an evolution in, in our thoughts that that's there. I mean, I don't disagree with that, but then I, I'm certainly not equating ourselves to Airbnb and Hilton, but look at Airbnb and Hilton. Airbnb is a platform network. It is a marketplace and it is, you know, uh, multi-billion dollar valuation, uh, tens and tens of billions of dollars, right? Uh, and Hilton's still doing just fine. Mm, yeah. <laughs> now, granted, they've made some waves and Hilton and Hyde and all these big brands are, are responding, but ultimately their stock is doing just fine still. So perhaps it's a little arrogant of a moto to say, well, Stilio is going to put us out of business. There's likely enough space in the market for both types of businesses. So that's sort of how we're thinking now that there's going to be agents that don't want to use a marketplace and an individual photographer. They want the security of working with one large business. Uh, and then there's going to be agents who don't. So potentially there is a space for, for both companies. And, you know, that's great for a moto because we could continue to be profitable and expand slowly as we have been. Uh, and it's great for Stilio because it'll allow Stilio to grow rapidly but then it's a marketplace, it's a tech play, which means we can start going into other parts of the industry and expanding outside of real estate photography. Perhaps we create a, a portrait uh, marketplace. I mean, that's sort of thinking smaller, but you get the idea that there's just, there's the real estate industry and then there's the photography industry that'll allow Stilio to expand in, uh, and, and do a lot of really cool things. With all the, you know, hype and, and, and clearly that there was a need for the photographers to come on to Stilio. How do you then get the also the, the paying customer up on there at the same time? Was it through existing relationships with the Emoto platform that you were able to say, hey, we've got this new platform. I, I'd love you if you, you know, try it out or push it out to your network. How, how did you balance the both? Because if with 6,000 applications in three months, you better have some work for them, <laughs> right? Otherwise yeah. it, 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 would, it would fail. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And, and that is an issue we are solving right this very second. Um, you know, we had some major tech issues that we, that's sort of a, a different question, but we onboarded a lot of photographers and then uh, the system started breaking, uh, to be completely frank. And so we were driving the agent side to the site and they're the ones that are going to be placing the orders and spending the money. And we had a hard time converting a lot of those leads. Uh, and we were getting orders, we were getting orders across the country, but certainly not enough to fulfill all of those photographers that were active on the site. And we got pushback. No, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Photographers were like, I've been on the site for six months, I haven't gotten an order. Uh, and the, we responded specifically to them and tried to give advice and be candid about it. But Ultimately, the user experience on the agent side uh, a while back was not good. Uh, and we needed to address that. And I guess that's not a bad segue into what happened from the, the tech side. But 
we raised money for Stilio. Uh, what we wanted to do specifically was completely separate the two businesses so that uh, people ask, well, why didn't we just bootstrap Stilio? Technically, Emoto could have done that, yes, but the idea was is Stilio is a different beast. It's a tech startup. Emoto is a combination of service business and maybe tech. Uh, it's more of a service business. So it's totally different business models, different capital needs. With Stilio, if we hit it, we know we're going to need to continually raise money down the line. So the thought was investors would prefer to have a very clean uh, start. So that's what we did. We raised uh, some money. Um, happy to tell you exactly what we raised. We raised a half a million dollars. And the idea was spend 400 grand on the site and spend 100 grand on marketing, uh, basically. Uh, we signed a fixed bid contract with a highly recommended third party provider. We chose not to hire internal. The thought was, well, we can overpay a little bit, but then we could roll it out much faster with the third party. That's advice we got. We hired, we had advisors, we have an advisory board. We did our homework. We did everything we felt like we had to do. Well, uh, that's, uh, that was a big deal because it ended up not being the right company. Uh, the, the people doing the work were geniuses. They knew what they were doing. There was a lot of difficulty from the executive level. There was uh, lots of turnover from the, the president leaving on down to even our project managers. We had four different project managers. Uh, halfway through the job, they said, uh, we spent your $400,000, and if you'd like us to finish it, you have to pay us a million dollars more on top of it. So we said, uh, that's a big problem, a very big problem. And then long story short, lawyers were, were called, but we pretty much said, hey, guys, we got to figure this out because if we don't, then I have a fiduciary responsibility from, for, for our investors to get our money back, and I'm going to have to hire lawyers, which means Stilio will be shut down because we don't have any cash to finish the site. The site will have to pay legal bills. You won't be able to afford the judgment if we win, and so you're going out of business. So let's not do that. Let's figure out a way to get this done. We agreed on a lot of functionality cuts, uh, and they uh, band-aid, they put together something held together with band-aids. We did our best to smoke screen it and to test it. Once they turned it over to us about uh, six months late that they turned it over to us and we did the best we could uh, and it seemed to work. And then as soon as those photographers started onboarding and getting orders, uh, the site started failing. Uh, and the biggest example is that when an agent would put in a zip code to be able to see the results, it would be 35 seconds to load the page. And if you're an agent or any consumer, quite frankly, going to a new site they've never used and it takes 35 seconds to load a page, are you really going to give them a credit card? No, you're not going to do that. And we basically stopped all the marketing because we weren't going to make uh, the, uh, any conversions. We had to hire another third party company because again, we didn't have any money anymore. We raised, we, we did a little loan. That company helped us with, solving our three biggest issues, the server issue, which is the, the culprit of the, the, the load time. Mobile didn't work, so they helped us make mobile work. And then we, we did some upgrades with the user experience. Uh, and you know, we were a small fish in a big pond with them. They did that and that was it. 
And uh, so we were about to turn marketing back on again when we were accepted into a local accelerator program through the Idea Village. And we said, well, why don't we delay? Let's, let's talk to some new advisors. And we got some really great advice. And ultimately, we have hired uh, an internal CTO, someone who can be the CTO, but also has a background in coding. So he's our initial engineer, working with a couple of outsourced parties to help us along. And we are totally revamping everything. And now the site is functional. The orders are coming in around the country. We still haven't turned on marketing yet, so some of the photographers are not getting orders and we may be losing them. And I don't like that at all, but you know, that's reality. Uh, we're, and then not only that, we're, we're developing a new sort of revenue model for Stilio that we've learned to, to uh, attract photographers with an existing book of business. So to go all the way back to, to your original question with this long-winded answer about getting the people who are spending money on the site, we're going to try to do push and pull marketing. Pull marketing being, can we build something so attractive for the photographers that already have a book of business that they'll bring their book of business onto the site and operate their business as letting Stilio be their business in a box, their back end, um, and have that, will they pay a monthly fee for that? So we're building all of these services for, for, for that. And we don't want to turn on marketing again until that's all done. And it's pretty close. And then the other thing is redeveloping and redesigning the user experience so that we're capturing much and converting many more of those agents that are finding us through our online presence, you know, Google AdWords, Facebook, Instagram, those types of tools. So that is what we are 100% focused on right this very second. That's awesome. That, well, look, it's been, you know, I think a really great snapshot at how you've taken an original idea, uh, you've pivoted, and, and that original idea was successful, uh, and, and you thought it would cannibalize it, and all of a sudden, well, hang on, this other idea is actually causing us some issues, and you've gone through some rocky times, and you're coming out, you know, with, a, with more clarity on how the two businesses could coexist together, and maybe also not necessarily, but bring ideas from one to help the other, you know, in terms of, you know, bringing on photographers with a book of business. I think that is uh, quite smart in terms of a, a, just a different strategic approach. But um, also you, you sort of painted a really nice picture of just how bloody difficult it is to start a technology company, uh, albeit everyone's telling you how bloody easy it is. I'll just start an app and you'll just make a million dollars. That's it. That's all you got to do. Like, duh. Yeah. yeah I mean, you couldn't be uh, more right than that. I mean, my background is not technology. Right. I am a, what do they call it? Non-technical tech founder. <laughs> uh, and I didn't realize how big of a, a issue that is. People told me, but I thought, hey, look, I, I, build, I, I built Emoto. It's, it's hugely successful. I know how to run a company. And I, what I will do is I will get smart people to build that for me. And then I'll run the business. But that's not the case. You really have to, if you're trying to bootstrap and if you don't have, you know, $10 million at your disposal where you'll have a full team, you're playing project manager, you're playing product manager, you are playing engineer and you need to be able to speak that language. And uh, even when working with third party providers to know if you're getting screwed or not, or at the very least, you need to have the right advisors on board. And it's not even just having the right advisors. It's, do you have the right advisors who can give you the time that you need? We have great advisors. There's no doubt we were getting great advice, but they were advisors. They had their own profession. So they couldn't be with us in every meeting. 
and they couldn't necessarily pick up on cues that things are not going well. Uh, and so I had to learn a lot. I had to do a lot of reading. I had to re-educate myself on how do you be, how, can, how are you a tech founder? Uh, what do you need to know? What's important? Who do you need to surround yourself with? What are the most important parts? I mean, it really even goes down to what's the difference between a product manager and a project manager and a CTO for that matter. Um, some people out there may know that right off the bat, but I just had a general business background. Not, and, not necessarily uh, specific to, to technology, which is no. a whole new game in itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you just need to be willing to, to, to learn and yeah, things are hard. Uh, if this was really easy, then there would be a whole lot more competition out there. And uh, I can't predict the future. Maybe it's difficult because it's just not a viable option, but we do a lot of user testing. We do a lot of focus groups and the feedback we're getting is that yes, keep going through, run through all these brick walls, do everything you can to get it up and running. And um, you know, that's why I'm doing this and not a lawyer. I couldn't, I couldn't be, go and, do the same thing sort of day in and day out. Even though I complain about a lot of these issues, I think that's sort of what makes me so excited to go to work and, and, and happy to do what I'm doing. Awesome, man. Well, look, I, I just wrote down something here. One thing that came to mind, humble enough to continue to learn. And I think that is one of the, one of the biggest lessons out of today's conversation with you. But, but what does the future have in store for Folio, uh, Stilio, I should say, and uh, Emoto? Yeah, I mean, Emoto, we just opened a new market uh, last week. Nice. So we're still, we're still, I'm, I'm still the CEO of both companies. I still have enough time in the day to do that. There will be a time if, we're, if both companies are successful that I may not be able to do that. I don't claim to be Elon Musk even remotely, uh, but the parties in both companies know what we're trying to do right now and be smart with our money. Uh, Emoto is growing and it's going to continue to grow. It'll grow slowly like it it has to. The way that business model works is that it's very difficult to enter new markets successfully. Emoto has always decided like we're going to pick a market and we're going to stay there. We're going to build it and we're going to um, really go as far as we can into that market and not just say, oh, we're in every single state just so we could say that. We want to go and service our clients and be there and grow organically within that market. With Stilio, well, what does the future have for that? We are really, every day, we're making huge strides. We're getting more and more orders coming through the site. We have happier and happier photographers. People are getting it. Agents understand what we're doing. Um, and then what we're gonna be doing very soon is roll out this new freemium business model is what we're calling it. Basically, we're gonna, I don't have the exact details in terms of numbers, but photographers will be able to create an account and they will be able to get a certain amount of free photo editing for bringing their business onto the account, onto the site. We will not charge them uh, for a significant number of photos. And we're not talking 10 photos here. We're talking a number of shoots that they do on a monthly basis. They will get free photo editing. And then what we will have is some premium, um, premium features that they could purchase for a monthly fee. And the idea is, is that the combination of these packages, they're likely already paying for. So for example, virtual tours, that's something that real estate photographers buy. A virtual tour is basically a listing website where the photos are there and a slideshow, the, there's a map, there is a lead capture for the agent and typically agent, uh, photographers will pay for that so that they can provide that to their clients. 
So that's one example of what photographers are already paying for. So the thought is we will stack a bunch of these services that they're already paying for and be able to, they can pay for it on a monthly basis and save potentially 75% off of what they're currently paying. Uh, and then we'll have a la carte features. If you just want to pay for editing, you can do that. So the thought is to really focus on the photographer, make their lives easier, become a trusted partner. They need to know we are there for them. And if we can give them the services so that it is not transaction based, they know that we have their best interest at heart. Uh, and then also again, focus on not just the pull marketing, but the push marketing so that we could uh, bring in agents who perhaps are in smaller markets that don't think they have any options. And now Stilio is showing them that they do have options. So uh, the, the, op the opportunity is endless. This is a very large uh, country. And then not only that, this is a very large world. There's plenty of other countries out there that could use a, a Stilio style uh, uh, company for real estate photography. Well, mate, I'm really excited, and uh, it sounds like you've got a lot on the boil, which is going to be an incredible <laughs> couple of years to come. But I know that they're not going to be without its trials and tribulations. Sure. But it sounds like you've already, you know, weathered a quite a bit of the storm, yeah. which is which is great. Um, but I will do want to be respectful of your time. So we're now coming in the, the show. Would you like to uh, dive into giving me your top five investing tips? Yeah, let's do it. Mate, what's the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? So what we do is uh, we have a specific thing that we call Project Emoto, and we're going to be applying that to Stilio. And basically, it allows us to communicate from different, um, what's it called, uh, divisions within the company so that every day we have these steps so that we're all on the same page. So we've got core values, we've got a core focus. Every decision that we make, no matter who's making that decision, all has to flow through into our core values and our core focus. And so that, that keeps us all on the same page. So every single day, that's what we're doing. We're doing Project Emoto. Uh, there's a, a lot of different terms for this. There's all these books out there, but ultimately it's having your weekly meetings, it's having your daily meetings, it's having that communication line open so that everybody knows what everyone else is doing. Awesome, awesome. Who is the most influential person in your career to date? Uh, without a doubt, my dad, there, there's no question about it. I, I've talked about it briefly earlier and say just the fact that I saw how he was able to put his four kids through college uh, and, but also be at every bitty baseball game that I had when I was eight years old and to be able to do it with grace and humility. And to, uh, he gave me the best piece of advice, even though it may sound crass, but he explained it, which was, um, Figure out, a way to make money. <laughs> figure out a way to make money while you're sleeping. And it's not, it, it wasn't from a be lazy perspective. It was, you need to know how to earn more money than just an hourly rate. When you're sleeping, you're not earning an hourly rate, so to speak. So it's to be willing to take risks. It's be willing to put yourself in uncomfortable situations if you have analyzed the situation and there's a good potential. So without a doubt, he's the, the biggest inspiration. That's awesome. In, in your businesses, um, what is the most influential tool, either software or hardware related? Most influential, influential tool. Um, it could be simple as a, as a cell phone, you know, like uh, what? What would it be? I, maybe uh, the, the advent of podcasting, the fact that I can listen <laughs> to 
podcasts on the way to work when I'm exercising, when I'm, yep. you know, traveling and we do a lot, of, I do a lot of traveling and that is the, that's my new secondary education. I can listen to podcasts from every industry, from uh, even books on tape. So it's right. like audible. Audible. Yep. Uh, I would say that's, I'm able to pick up tips and tricks. I just read a, a book um, or listened to a book by Walter Isaacson on uh, Leonardo da Vinci. That has nothing to do with real estate photography, but I learned about how he sort of dabbled in a lot of different things, but perhaps he didn't have the right follow through on certain things. So projects went uh, unfinished and that made me think of one thing that, oh wait, you know, we were trying to do this, but we forgot about it. Uh, let's stay on point. So maybe, yeah, something like that, I would say. Awesome, awesome. In one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? Uh, and what did you learn from that failure? The biggest failure was hiring a third-party tech company to build the MVP for Stilio. What we learned from that is the amount of money that we spent, I could have hired two ex-Microsoft engineers for over a year, and they could have, it would have, it would have taken me over a year to do it, but I would have gotten a far better product. Uh, and that was absolutely, you know, it was a huge mistake, and we, I own that mistake. We did the best we could to make that decision, but ultimately it was absolutely the wrong decision. Uh, and it cost a lot of money, but luckily we've been able to dig ourselves out of it and right the ship and the future is, is still bright. So we've learned from it, but if I gave any advice to anyone else, if you're thinking about this, figure out a way to get some internal de developers for you. That's interesting. That's a really good piece of advice because I think a lot of people as they're bootstrapping technology companies think that they can just outsource that. Um, but you've got to also remember those third party companies are also trying to make money at the same time. And every single change is going to be upping your fee. It's like a, it's like an architect, you know, when you make design, just changes in, on the field yeah, or, or a builder. Uh, so that's going to go up another two, two or three times just because you made that design decision in the field on some of the plans. So mate, where can people go to continue the conversation? They want to find out a little bit more about Stilio um, or about your other company and maybe a little bit more about you and, and what you do. Yeah. Uh, Emoto is Emoto.com. That's I-M-O-T-O.com. That's the combination of Emoto and, sorry, of image and photo into one word, Emoto. Stilio is Stilio.com, S-T-I-L-I-O.com. Uh, if you're a real estate agent or even a photographer, go to Stilio. Dot com put in a zip code and you'll see all the local photographers if you're a photographer and you're like hey i'm better than that guy hey create an account it's free and uh i'm you know you could google daryl glade i'm sure i pop up i'm on linkedin and of course we have facebook presences and and uh instagram by the way we have a great instagram for both companies so if you like uh what people call real estate porn that's a great place for you to see some really beautiful houses around the country it's fun um, but yeah, reach out on LinkedIn and uh, I'd love to have a conversation if you have any questions. Certainly. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for dropping by. A couple of the big three big takeaways from today's conversation, I think, is is being humble enough to continue to learn uh, as a CEO, as a founder, as an entrepreneur. You have never stopped learning throughout this process. And I think you're humble enough to admit your mistakes um, and, and put your hand up and say, well, hang on, I don't actually know what I was doing and I need to reevaluate. Um, I think also the importance, if you are going to start a technology company, particularly in the real estate space, 
regardless of what that is, if you're a, a non-technical, what was it, non-technical technology founder or something like yeah. that, <laughs> NTTF, um, you then need to surround yourself with the right people to get that advice, i.e. don't go out and do a third party, maybe go and hire two ex-Microsoft people to, to get it done for you, bring it in-house a lot sooner. Um, and, and the other thing I think is, you know, you're, you're just... Your appetite to always be pivoting as you know you grow. You're pivoting at an early age where you went from um, you know washing cars into an undergrad. Then you went to MBA. Then you, tr- you thought you had to become a lawyer, uh, and then you pivoted your business from uh, Emoto into Stilio, which I think is really really uh, interesting and something that a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs out there don't necessarily do. They get their blinkers on and they just look at I've got to make this work, make this work, make this work. Um, and they don't take the blinkers off and then understand that there's other opportunities and really listen to the market and uh, uh, sitting down and writing out all those lists of things that your uh, original product was not doing to then go and form a secondary product, which I think was super um, self-reflecting, which a lot of entrepreneurs don't do when they're just grinding out to try and get to the next sale or the next deal or make sure they're getting that cash flow working. So um, some really awesome tips and advice there. Did, did I leave anything out? No, I mean, it, it, it sort of sounds like I am the type of guy who just bounces there and here <laughs> all these different places, but ultimately it's really more of an evolution. Right. And, yes. Uh, just don't be afraid to make changes. Yes. Uh, I would say, and yeah, I'm, we're still running those businesses and I'm still involved in real estate, but uh, you just learn to capitalize on opportunities and, and seize the ones that you, that you, that are right in front of you. Awesome. Love it. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice for starting a real estate technology company in and around photography. But some of the lessons learned from Daryl are really invaluable about how you do go and start that technology piece of any company. Um, So if you do want more information, please head over to Daryl's websites. They will be all up on my website in the show notes at readgooses.com. Remember to click on the podcast link. We're going to do it all again next week. So take care, be safe. Remember, happy investing.